This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We here in Ontario are currently navigating a fourth wave of COVID-19. Today, there are 591 confirmed cases of the virus and seven COVID-related deaths. At the same time, Canada's COVID vaccine rollout has been extended to children 5 to 11. And just this morning, Health Canada approved the Johnson & Johnson 1 dose COVID vaccine for people 18 and over. We also have the ongoing uptake of the booster shot for those residents currently eligible. And in addition, the holidays are coming up. Hanukkah begins this Sunday evening and Christmas Eve is one month from today. So what should families know and adhere to to be COVID cautious? A lot to discuss with our experts. Dr. Peter Uni is Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. He will be here in a bit. But first, Dr. Susie Hota, Infectious Diseases Specialist and Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network. Dr. Hota, great to have you back. Good afternoon, and thanks for having me on the show, Jane. Dr. Hoda, I just wanted to reconnect and, and remind you that you were our very first guest in January of 2020 <laughs> when we first started talking about the new coronavirus. Yeah, it's hard to remember what things were like back then. It feels like a, an eternity ago, but uh, but here we are. Here we are. Talking about it. In the fourth wave. So where would you say we are at in that fourth wave? You know, I think we're, we're in the midst of, uh, of the wave, and if you want to call it a wave, at some point in time, I think we're going to have to back away from calling these waves, or we're going to run out of numbers, because <laughs> things may wax and wane, I think, for some period of time um, as the virus kind of adapts and, and we continue to improve on immunity within the population. What we're seeing right now, and don't get too excited about today's numbers looking a little bit lower than the last few days' numbers, because Tuesday tends to have slightly lower numbers for whatever reason of cases. Um, There is a bit of a periodicity. Um, But we are still seeing the seven-day average of cases, uh, daily cases in Ontario, increasing slightly. But the good news is the rate of increase seems to be slowing. So we're not going up as as uh, steeply or dramatically day by day as we were for a short period of time where mm. it was looking a bit troubling. Um, so, you know, it could be that we're starting to blend things by, you know, the different things that we're doing to try and mitigate the risk over time, which includes, you know, health units that are experiencing problems, actually instituting some restrictions for a short period of time to get things under control. And of course, what we'll be talking a little bit more about the vaccine uh, changes. Okay, so we still have anywhere between 500, 600, 7 hundred cases a day and every day there are related deaths. What do we know about these people in terms of their vaccination status? We do know that the unvaccinated folks and the people who are not fully vaccinated, so they're, you know, in between getting their first and second dose of vaccine, are the ones that tend to be most affected by this pandemic. So the overall numbers are are mostly unvaccinated or partially vaccinated people, although you do still see some fully vaccinated folks that, you know, are in that group as well. But then when you look at hospitalizations and ICU admissions and deaths, you know, we're we're seeing more uh, of the unvaccinated being affected by the severity of the illness. So that's really the important point to get out there about how vaccines are protecting our society. They're keeping people less sick if they do happen to get exposed to COVID-19 and infected. And is it fair to say, and it's, you know, it really is horrible every day seeing that there are three more deaths, seven more deaths, um, which is the case today. What do we know about these individuals who are actually dying because they got covid We don't know a huge amount. We do know that they do tend to be the older individuals who get it who are dying, unfortunately. And some of that might be reflective of, um, regardless of vaccination status, some uh, waning immunity that we do see in older age groups who were fully vaccinated earlier on as we did our rollout and prioritized people at highest risk. 
And so getting the booster shots is going to be really important to try and protect older individuals as we continue, like I said, to navigate all this. Um, so that, that's part of it. But also, you know, having other health conditions does put you at risk for complications of COVID-19 and also complications just from being in the hospital and developing secondary problems. So uh, that is, you know, kind of the extent of what we know about deaths. And, and the number of deaths has been small on a daily basis, but it continues. And so, you know, I think that means we can't get our take our eye off the you know, what the the aim is here. That's interesting that you say people are dying, even though they, they had the two shots and perhaps they had them back in January, February because of their age. How important is it? And uh, do we know any more on the ideal time to get that booster shot following the second shot? The current recommendation is about six to eight months after your second dose for the vast majority of people who got vaccinated um, who need it for waning immunity. We, we've been rolling out third doses for a few, a couple of different reasons, actually. And I kind of think of them as third doses versus booster do- doses. So the third doses that were provided for or are being provided for immune-compromised people, the rationale there is a little bit different. It's because after two doses, it appears that they don't tend to m- mount as good an immune response as somebody whose immune system is working as well. And ah. so the, the, the thinking there is you need a third dose. It's not to boost necessarily. It's just that that's what you need to try and get some immunity. Um, and then for other people, you know, based on age and, and based on risk of exposure, et cetera, we've been rolling out booster doses because of the um, declining effect of your immune response, or so we believe. Um, and that's um, really just based upon seeing breakthrough infections increase in certain groups compared to others, age being the biggest one, I think, that drives that, uh, as well as seeing what happens with antibodies and other immune markers in the blood that we can measure, which gives us a part of the story, but not the complete story. So, Dr. Hoda, and I know we're not really there yet in the vaccine rollout, but how, what happens after the third dose or the booster dose? At what point will we get a fourth shot or will we get a fourth shot or, or how will how will that play out? We don't know. Uh, At this point, we don't know. Some people actually believe it could just be that we need three doses for everybody, like I said, the three-dose regimen as opposed to booster doses because of waning immunity, because maybe this is just the the way that our our bodies respond to this vaccine, Um, and maybe that's what's needed for everybody, and after that, we'll have a good enough immune response that will be lasting enough in the body that we won't require boosters. But I I do think personally that we will start to see waning immunity as an issue, uh, you know, after some time, uh, whether that's a year after the third dose, who knows. Um, But it also depends on what's happening with COVID-19. And we'll have to see in real life, like we have through much of this pandemic, uh, what the best uh, approach will be based on the data. How big of a positive difference are vaccines making? And now we've just added the little ones as well. They'll start to get their first shots tomorrow. They're really making a big difference. I can say from the hospital sector, we notice a big difference. You asked about this fourth wave. And when I look at the data in our hospital, it's, it's like a little blip. It's almost as though it's comparable to the sort of blip we saw before the second wave of activity in the hospitals um, in this pandemic prior to vaccines being available. In other words, people aren't getting as sick from this when they're, you know, and vaccines are to be, um, you know, uh, lauded for that that reason. So I, I do think that this is our, our way to handle this pandemic and to manage it as we go forward. And having more people vaccinated reduces the number of individuals who are susceptible to getting infection in the first place. It's not perfect in stopping infections, but just by virtue of doing that, it's going to reduce transmission amongst people who remain a bit vulnerable, like the immune compromised, etc. And so it is a very important strategy to get as many people, little ones, adults, whoever's been waiting to get vaccinated. Uh, I'll ask this to Dr. Peter Uni when he joins us as well, but we've just uh, found out from Health Canada they have they have approved the Johnson & Johnson one-dose COVID vaccine for people 18 and over. Um, the approval has happened, but will this vaccine be given out in Canada now? You know, it's, it's great. It was a very quiet approval. This update uh, kind of slipped in there. Um, but uh, I think it, it can be useful. Uh, some provinces are already requesting it because they uh, there are individuals who are concerned with getting mRNA vaccines. They just don't want to get the mRNA vaccines. Um, I, the mRNA vaccines are very safe, and we've got tons of experience with them now globally. Um, but nevertheless, there are some people who've held out because of that. And having another option, since AstraZeneca is currently not being used in a lot of uh, places, unless you have a contraindication to the um, 
the mRNA vaccines, this just opens up another option. Um, so I think that's that's one advantage. The other advantage is it's a single dose. So for people who are not going to be as easy to get for a second dose, um, I think this can be a one and done deal, and um, and that's helpful. Now the protection you get from Johnson and Johnson single dose is slightly lower in terms of effectiveness for symptomatic infection. Um, however, it is still good and it's better than nothing. So I, you know, I think, and it still protects people from severe outcomes like hospitalization as well. And Dr. Hoda, just before I let you go, your thoughts, your recommendations for people with the holidays coming up and how they should be continue to be COVID friendly and COVID aware. The first thing is follow the public health measures in your jurisdiction. And they're slightly different now because, you know, like I said earlier on, some places are experiencing problems and might have tighter restrictions than others. But really do follow those as best as you can. And I mean, to the T would be the best way to go. Um, but, you know, I understand it's important for us to see our families and to socialize. Just make those careful decisions about, you know, who you're seeing, understand the situation, the environment you're going to be in. Um, you know, the, the vaccination, I think, will make a lot of people feel reassured especially with younger generations mingling with older generations and and having that added protection. Thank you for your time. It was nice to chat. You're welcome. Take care. Dr. Susie Hota is Infectious Diseases Specialist and Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network. Joining us now, and he is a regular guest here on Fight Back, Dr. Peter Uni, Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Dr. Uni, thanks for your time again. Thanks for having me again. Hi. How do you see where we're at in the fourth wave? Oh, look, um, we're, we continue just to be in a very wobbly um, uh, phase, but uh, we also continue to do the right thing. We just need to get a little bit better with it. I know I sound like a broken record. Wear your masks when you're indoors. Make sure, you know, if you're actually controlling an indoor space, like in a restaurant or so, that all your patrons really have their full vaccination. That's tremendously important. And in addition, you know, what we can do right now is just try to optimize ventilation everywhere. That's what we can do. But we look much better than everywhere else in the world. Now you could say, well, it's so sad what's happening in Europe. And I agree with you, that's little comfort. But still, you know, we have a lot of liberties and it looks actually quite good. But our numbers creep up. So we really need to be careful. So what are we doing better in Ontario than in other parts of the world? You mentioned Europe. What And, and what could we improve? on still? Oh, I think we're doing nearly everything better. So first of all, we haven't pretended the pandemic is over. No, there were a few months just before where some people in Europe said, hooray, you know, we have uh, so, so many people vaccinated. This is all over. And we kept saying here, uh-uh, it's not over. This is Delta. We still have too many people who are not vaccinated. It's a challenge. So uh, we're doing that right. Meaning also, you know, people continue to mask, even so with a bit less discipline. And and uh, we really have the vaccine certificates in place. That's the two things that right now are changing the game. It's not quite enough in places like uh, Algoma or so, uh, as we know. And we just need to uh, fiddle a bit there also with uh, with the capacity limits, etc. And I really hope that they get things there under control well. And it may be here too, you know, when I think about some restaurants that I've seen, I'm still a bit uneasy about, uh, you know, a lot of people in there and, you know, things being quite chaotic. There we might need to do some fine-tuning in the future. Right now, we're still okay, sort of. But let's be alert, and at the same time, let's enjoy our freedom. It will stay if we don't get ahead of ourselves. Now, looking back, did we here in Ontario lift the capacity limits too soon, thinking about the big sporting venues and theatres so that it, it, all of those places are at full capacity? Was that the right decision in retrospect? Look, um, this was really about trying to find out how much we can afford, you know, of uh, just lifting capacity limits. And to be honest, it worked out surprisingly well. Right now, I believe if we all were a little bit more disciplined and would again also, you know, socially make a bit more choices and say, okay, I go there, I have like my little budget of risk that I invest, you know, I go there, but not here. 
because I'm just a bit more selective with my contacts, then we might actually be able to bring the effective reproduction number to one, meaning, you know, we have the daily case uh, rates that are the same every day. Right now, we just creep up a little bit. So if we change a little bit of our behavior, get a little bit better also with, uh, you know, ventilating all the spaces, etc., and now vaccinate the kids, and have people get their third doses if possible and have even more people getting vaccinated with the first and second, perhaps we're just okay. What are the plans moving forward? It doesn't sound like we will be reversing the capacity limits, uh, you know, when it comes to gatherings and these big venues. Well, from my perspective, but again, you know, I'm not the, the chief medical officer of health, but from my perspective right now, it's about optimizing everything in the province, you know, just that we really have people wear their masks, that we have more people getting vaccinated, getting their third dose, get the, the, the kids vaccinated. And then in addition, just um, have places where we really struggle more, like Kingston or so, just revert some of the decisions made before. That's important just in these situations, just to decrease capacity limits again. And what do you think about travel uh, within Ontario, outside the province and outside of the country over the holidays? What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, especially if we go outside of the country, uh, what uh, this means typically will be um, fully vaccinated plus one negative test. That's a good strategy. That's important. You know, this means the probability that if I go and travel to New York State, for example, and come back, that I actually just bring back a variant is very low. That's okay. So I wouldn't be that concerned about travel. Things have changed there. And of course, again, the vaccination has made much of a difference, meaning even if somebody comes comes in, first of all, they have a much lower risk that they bring something home. And second, they don't find the same fertile ground that we've seen before when people weren't vaccinated. So we're on a good track there travel wisely. Dr. Uni, uh, how, what percentage uh, of the population, and we've heard 90 over and over again, needs to be double vaccinated, and I guess this includes children as well, for us to reach herd immunity if there is such a thing with COVID-19? There was with COVID-19 with uh, the wild type originally and with alpha, there is no such thing with delta right now. Why? Because it also slightly evades the immune system, the Delta variant, and is highly transmissible, meaning we really would need uh, 100% of the population to be immune. And that's also the news for all of those who are not vaccinated. You need to get immune, my friends. Everybody, either you're getting vaccinated or, I sound like a broken record again, but it's just true, or you get infected. There's no other way. There will not be anybody in this province a year from now, who isn't immune either way. I'll just let that resonate. Um, and, and in terms of the boosters, and I asked this of Dr. Hota as well, the ideal time after your second shot to get that third shot. It, it, it certainly depends a bit on the situation you're in, you know, when nobody knows exactly when and how. We need to be aware of that in our province we have had the lucky situation that the interval between the first and second shot was relatively long, and this probably was to our advantage. We talked about that before. Right now, um, despite the fact that a lot of people just uh, you know reach the six-month limit now, we don't see much of a decrease in protection against infection yet, which is great news. So I would believe something around, who knows, seven months or so could be a sweet spot, roughly. The point is, those who are eligible right now, please get your third shot. You need the third shot sooner or later. Please make it sooner. And I have to tell you, I have to give you credit for this, Dr. Uni. When I was talking to you back in the summer and we were thinking about the kids' vaccines, you told me the end of November, beginning of December, you felt exactly. that, would, that would be the beginning of when shots would go into little arms and you were bang on. Exactly. So our two to seven and nine-year-olds get their shots this Friday. Bang on what I said in August. I know I was lucky. I could have been wrong. <laughs> I wasn't this time. Uh, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, uh, will we be using that, the one-dose vaccine, now that it has been approved by Health Canada? Susie was referring to that. You know, this is important for people who are still skeptical, unjustified, uh, but skeptical about the uh, mRNA vaccine. It's important that we reach all holdouts. Whatever is possible is good. So uh, great if we can get a little bit of these vaccines and have people who are skeptical about the mRNA vaccine vaccinated with this one.
Thank you so much once again. Uh, you help us a lot with your information and put everything in perspective, which is uh, so important as this pandemic continues. Dr. Uni, thank you for your time. Thanks a lot for having me again. Have a good afternoon. You too. Dr. Peter Uni is Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Libby Snymer returns tomorrow. I will talk to you tomorrow morning on the Morning Zoom with Sam and Jane. Sam will be back as well. And Bob Comsick is here with the news. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns to Fight Back tomorrow. I asked you before the break if you're planning to spend less this holiday season over last year. And again, the numbers 416-360-0740 or 1-866-740-4740. According to a new survey, nearly one in four Canadians say they will be spending less and by as much as 13% less. What does this mean for small business owners? Certainly, it cannot be good news. Joining us to discuss, Ryan Mello, Director of Provincial Affairs at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and John Wright, Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion. Hello to you both. Great to be with you. John, uh, I have to ask you, as an old friend, um, your new company, Maru, what does the the name reflect? (laughs) Well, we have a... Simply, we have a CEO who lives in London, England, that controls the company in four different continents. Oh, John, we've. We, are you on a speakerphone, John? No, I'm on my. Okay, if you could just maybe change your position a little bit because you're really um, uh, coming in and out. How's that? <clears throat> no, I'm going to get Steve to correct that situation, and in the meantime, I'll go over to Ryan. Ryan, how's your phone line? Uh, pretty good, I think. Yes, it is very good. This is not good news for independent business owners. No, it's certainly worrying. I mean, last year, especially here in Toronto in the GTA, it was incredibly difficult holiday shopping season. A lot of uh, small retailers were closed entirely to in-store shoppers. So to see shopping intentions uh, down and shopping to uh, online sales and big box stores up, uh, it's certainly a worrying trend for the small business owners. So what is the state of small business at this point in the pandemic? So it's still extremely precarious. I mean, it's been a, a really difficult 20 months and we're not through it yet. There is, uh, you know, some positivity in terms of the number of businesses that are open, about three quarters uh, of small businesses in Ontario report being fully open. However, when you look further down, only 42% rep- uh, say they're fully staffed. And only 34% say they're at or above normal revenue levels for this time of year. That's actually a drop from recent months where it was closer to 37, uh, 38%. So it really underscores how important this holiday season is going to be and how much we really need a strong one. Okay, we'll go to the phones and chat with our listeners as well. Uh, we've got John Wright back. Hi again, John. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. So you were telling me about the name of Maru, where it came from. Well, we happen to have a CEO who lives in London, England, and operates this company on four uh, continents, but his real love is Star Trek. And it's one of the earliest Star Trek uh, scenes where uh, Captain Kirk, uh, as an ensign, saves um, a spaceship by doing what, uh, and spaceship has the name Maru in it. So that's where it comes from. It's interstellar. Okay, I had to know. (laughs) Um, So tell us about the latest findings uh, by Maru on uh, small business, and it is not an optimistic scenario. No, and we did the work with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business because this is a crucial time, not just because of spending opportunities on Black Friday, but also the holiday season. But more importantly, since COVID hit in March of 2020, a lot of small businesses are being impacted. So this holiday season is really important. And what we're finding, as you rightly said, across the country, people are pulling in their horns. A little bit. Um, I mean, we had 24% or so that said that they went out last Black Friday to do some some shopping, and the majority of it is online. This year, a little less. And I I think, you know, when you look at some of the other statistics dealing with the cost of living that is rising, I think people are a little concerned about that, and they're pulling in their horns. 
Okay, what are you planning to do this year? Are you going to spend as much, more or less than last year? I know primarily people were shopping online last year because of the pandemic. And at that point, the pending lockdown, 416-360-0740 or 1-866-744-740. John in Tottenham, what would you like to add? Well, I would like to add to this that uh, supply and demand is going. I'm in the trucking industry, and um, I see supply-demand chain uh, going to be a problem for consumers because they're not getting what they want, and which is, you know, a shortage, which drives the prices up. And, uh, you know, I see a lot of things that uh, you can't get. So it's going to have a bearing. No, that's a great point. Thanks for calling in with that, John. Uh, John Wright, how big of an issue is that? Because we all know it's taking longer for things to arrive that are being ordered online. And uh, we are seeing empty shelves in some stores or partially empty shelves. Well, I think businesses rely on that supply chain to stay open. So it's not just ordering things in to arrive before Christmas, but all the time. I think we're seeing that. There's also another issue going on here. The Bank of Canada has signaled that we might be looking at, uh, you know, rate increases to cool down the inflation. However, that usually comes when there's a lot of money chasing fewer goods. And while that may be the case, because we've actually got $17 billion in circulation more than we did before the pandemic. I mean, we had CERB, a lot of other people who had income started paying down debt. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of money on the sidelines, and the assumption, I think, among many economists were that that money would be spent, and in fact, it's not. We have people, in fact, keeping the money um, and their debt locked down. Um, they're, they're kind of making sure that they don't go forward and accumulate more. So while houses may be up, the accumulation of, of, uh, of debt is down, but it's still creating inflation because of supply chain. So business is having a, a, it's, it's a real impact on business and trying to get things to consumers, especially at this time of the year, and especially for small businesses. Well, right, yeah, well, that's what I wanted to ask. Ryan, how big of a deal is the supply chain situation? Is it affecting the big box stores more, or is it affecting the smaller retails more? So it is something that's impacting the entire retail sector, and they are feeling it, you know, from, from groceries to clothing to electronics and other goods. One of the the very short-term potential bright spots in that is a lot of small retailers for their holiday stock. Oftentimes, that's been sort of planned months uh, in advance, and a lot of them will have it in. Whereas, you know, uh, if you're Amazon or one of the bigger giants that sort of relies on that order it and deliver it immediately kind of model, that's where it might be a little bit tighter. So there's a little bit of potential there for, you know, if you're looking for a good and find that you can't find it online or it's coming too long, it may actually be around the corner uh, this time around and perhaps an incentive to shop local. That being said, you know, if you look at the, the port of Los Angeles and the number of ships that are waiting to get in, uh, the terrible uh, flooding that we've seen in British Columbia and then wiping out the rail and highway lines, I think the supply chain uh, issue is, is only just developing, unfortunately. And, you know, every day of delay is going to be felt a little bit further down the road. So it's not just the holiday season we need to watch, but the traditionally lean months of January, February, March for a small retailer uh, are going to be that much tighter because this issue is going to exacerbate it. John, your survey also suggests that big box stores and the online giants are getting most of our money. Tell us about that finding. It's it's normal, I think, at this time of the year when people go out to bigger stores to get bigger deals. Uh, but even online, that's, of course, the case. So we're finding a two-to-one advantage for the larger stores. Again, for small businesses, it's being compounded because they've been adversely affected during COVID. There's been more closures there than there were at some of the big box stores that were deliberately left open, and plus a lot of people going online. So, you know, going back to what I said right at the outset, this is a critical time for small business, for people to look into their communities, to go out and spend that money, because this is, um, you know, the first real season that they've had where people are out and about, and they're going to depend upon that holiday spending. And yet, Ryan, Ryan Malo with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, small business owners are still optimistic amidst all this. 
Yeah, and I think that's just the nature of a small business owner. I think it's a tough place to be in if you're not naturally optimistic. Um, and certainly our data shows that, you know, year over year, um, optimism is trending in a good direction. But when you look at the next three months, and then, of course, that includes the holiday season, it is a little bit tighter. And that's where we really are looking to uh, not just our communities, but also to our government to reinforce consumer confidence, to remind people that, you know, yes, for 20 months, we've been kind of stuck inside and told to limit ourselves to essential trips only. But this reopening is different. We do have the vaccination rate where it is. Uh, great news on, on uh, 5 to 11-year-old eligibility, and that's starting to come through. So to really encourage people to get back out and shop in person, support their communities, and remind them that when you are spending a dollar locally, a lot of that dollar stays local. Mm. It doesn't just support the business. It supports local jobs. It goes into local taxes that pave roads, build schools, uh, and that sort of thing, which isn't always the case when you're spending online at, say, an Amazon. And yet people have this perception, Ryan, that you will get a much better deal if you go to a Walmart or a Best Buy than if you go to the local shop on your main street in your neighborhood. Yeah, I think that's something that's always sort of been ingrained in us, that the online deals are better. And I've got to say that if you if you are actually out in your community and doing a little bit of price matching there, it doesn't always tend to be true. In fact, you will often find that in-person you are likely to find as good, if not a better deal, where the big guys really win out is on things like shipping. Uh, A small business in downtown Toronto can't really offer nationwide overnight free shipping in the way that the, the Amazons and the Walmarts can. But if you are able to get out in person and pick the item up, uh, or perhaps curbside if you're still a little bit hesitant, um, I strongly encourage people to check out their local shops because uh, the deals really are there to be had. Well, and how willing would a small retailer be to, to look at a flyer from a big box store and price match? Is that something, would that be, uh, you know, not ethical, but would it be acceptable to do that? Uh, it's certainly something that, you know, again, as a consumer, you may want to look into. The only thing that we would really discourage is the the difference that a small business really provides is really comes down to consumer experience. And, you know, go into a sporting goods store, you really get to take advantage of the expertise of the employees or the business owners on the spot. If you're looking for, you know, a new set of skis or hockey equipment, you get it fitted and that sort of thing. They can walk you through which brands are better, the kind of, you know, stick flex or skates that you need and that sort of thing. You really don't get that online, but that does come um, with a cost. So what we would really discourage is going the other way and sort of going into a business, gaining from that expertise, and then going and buying the product online. That's sort of the worst-case scenario. So if you are, uh, you know, looking to, to, to price shop or to take advantage and flyer match, going to the business and spending there is positive, but taking it back towards Amazon, that's what we're uh, concerned about on that side. John Wright, we started the segment by saying that nearly one in four Canadians say they will spend less this holiday season than last year and buy as much as 13% less. Is, do we know about how much money on average uh, the, the typical Canadian will spend on holiday shopping? Well, depending on where you are in the country, it's going to average somewhere between about 375 and about $450. So it's going to have more money when it comes to being in the Atlantic provinces um, and in Ontario, uh, less so in, in other parts of the country, although BC up until recently was looking good. I, I would suggest, however, that while there is more money that people will spend, um, you know, in different parts of the country, certainly the actual turnout to go and buy gifts is the other issue. It's a little bit like an election day where you've got so many votes in your pockets for goods on the shelf, and it depends on whether or not you actually go out and do that. So the expectations right now are that people will be going out in different places across the country. Um, But, you know, a lot of that will depend upon, you know, the weather and a whole series of other things that affect them. Tomorrow is U.S. Thanksgiving. It has always marked the day before Black Friday. In fact, the Black Friday sales traditionally always began on the evening right after uh, Thanksgiving dinner on the Thursday. We've had it here in Canada for a long time now. Then we have Cyber Monday. Then we have Giving Tuesday. But I understand that Saturday now has an identification in all of this. Ryan's Small Business Saturday. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so Small Business Saturday is something that we at CFIB have been doing for a while, but we've, over the last couple of years, 
tried to line it up with the, the Black Friday, Cyber Monday uh, uh, time of year, just because we know people are in the mindset of shopping. And it's a day that we really encourage people to get out local and support their small businesses. Uh, you can check out a little bit more at smallbusinesseveryday.ca. Um, we've got some great coloring sheets for the kids. We're running a contest right now. No purchase required. You can enter for uh, $2,000 cash prize, some eBay gift cards, uh, and that sort of thing. But really, the, the message behind the day is uh, to get out and support your local community, support local shopping. It's important at any time. Over the last 20 months we've had, it is exceptionally important this year. It will be make or break for a lot of retailers in your community, and not just retailers, but uh, restaurants, spas, personal services, um, if you're you know, going the gift card route or something like that, any any money that you have to spend this holiday season, if you can spend it local, is going to go a very long way. And just a final question on that, Ryan. I mean, we all know if, if you've frequented your local neighborhood Main Street, even in the city of Toronto, we have so many of them shopping along the Danforth, Bloor West, Ossington Village, uh, the Junction, on and on. That experience of going in and out of local stores, I mean, it, it's very fulfilling, especially if you're lucky enough to be able to walk from your home. How important is that local business community to our individual economies and to the greater Canadian economy? It's it's incredibly important. I mean, small businesses employ 87% of the the private sector here in Ontario. I mean, it it really is a a part of the economy. And not just the economy, but I think also our local and broader Canadian identities. I mean, we are talking about your, your favorite spots, the places where you go for comfort. It's the stores you drive past at night and you see the lights and realize that you're finally close to home. Um, and that's, that's what's at risk here. It's your, it's your community spirit and your community soul. So again, uh, if you are able, anything you can do to, to support and shop at those businesses, wonderful. If you're not, even just telling people about your favorite spot, word-of-mouth advertising is still phenomenal for local businesses. Um, so even just talking about it with friends and family is a big boost. And John, final thoughts from you? Well, I couldn't have said it any better than Ryan. I mean, small business right now, especially coming out of the pandemic, need local support. There's the people in your community, and if you're not out buying, then you're going to see a lot of empty retail space potentially in the spring. So now is the real test that we, you know, we've given back to a lot of restaurant owners where we've gone out and shopped uh, for food. Now it's time to hit the shelves uh, going forward into this holiday season to make sure that our local businesses uh, stay alive uh, into the new year. Right, even better go shopping locally and then enjoy some local food uh, at a restaurant in the neighborhood as well. Always nice to talk with both of you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. John Wright is Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion, and Ryan Malo is the Director of Provincial Affairs at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Jane Brown for Libby Snymer. She is back tomorrow. You're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And coming up in our final segment, where are we at in the fourth wave of this pandemic? We will chat with our experts about this next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is in the Zoomer Plex, but she is recording a show for Zoomer TV on Vision TV, so she will be back in this chair tomorrow. We know that the federal throne speech will pass, and the Trudeau Liberals can thank the Bloc Québécois for that. Leader Yves-Francois Blanchet indicated his members of parliament will vote in favour, although they don't fully support it. So the first test of confidence for the minority Liberals will pass, but there are concerns around the throne speech and the Liberals' vision for the coming session of Parliament. Some of those concerns are being voiced by the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Joining me to discuss, Kevin Lacey with the Canadian Taxpayers Association and Robin Sears, crisis communications consultant and former NDP strategist. Hello to you both. Good morning. Hello, thanks for having me. Kevin, let's start with your critique of the throne speech. Well, the throne speech missed the basic fundamentals of what's going on with average Canadians, which is they're seeing that the prices are going up on things they need. Uh, they're seeing that their pocketbook is being hit and they don't have enough money for the goods uh, to feed their family. 
And the Liberals have not done anything to address the rising costs uh, that are happening in the economy, and they don't mention anything about the fiscal situation of the government, which is quite dire. We do know that in terms of the relief spending all the way through the pandemic, they do want to lessen that with parliamentary approval. Does that not meet some of that criteria in reducing overall spending? Yeah, it's a step in the right direction. But the problem is, is that inflation is running out of control. And one of the reasons why inflation is running out of control and people are seeing everything from eggs to milk to other products that they need going up in price is because the government has kept these pandemic measures for far too long. That's caused uh, this inflation crisis, which we're in, which is hurting average families. And I think one of the things that troubled us from the throne speech yesterday is that the government really didn't mention anything at all uh, about inflation, rising costs, or the problem with the fiscal situation of the government. So what is the answer, or, I mean, what would you like to have seen? I think we would have liked to have seen from the throne speech uh, different priorities. You know, some of the things that are mentioned in the throne speech, it's hard to argue with, like improving Indigenous relations, um, you know, improving diversity and inclusiveness in Canada. I think it's hard to argue with those things. Uh, but we would also like to see a nod to the uh, pro- the financial problems that average Canadians are facing. Those were ignored by the budget, by this throne speech. And I think what we'd like to see is the government to begin to um, get its fiscal house in order, pare back the amount of money that's in the economy to try to control that inflation, and also to start to reduce the taxes on Canadians so that they can afford the things that they need. In what form would those taxes be reduced? Well, I think the big one is gas. Um, we're seeing gasoline tax or gasoline prices across Canada go up um, massively as a result of rising prices. And a lot of the price at the pump is taxes. And I think as a very first step, one of the things the government could do uh, is address the pain at the pumps through re- reduction in gas taxes. And what about housing affordability in terms of moving forward on that and giving regular people an opportunity to buy a house, especially in the big cities like Toronto? Yeah, that's a great point. And, and you know, that, that's often missed uh, by governments, and they haven't really laid out a plan for how they're going to address uh, that situation. But the housing situation, you know, is something else that, that leads into affecting the family budget on every single month. Uh, And the government really had very little to say about that either. Robin, let's go over to you. Robin Sears, crisis communications consultant, former NDP strategist. How big of a concern, um, or at least do you share the concerns that the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has pointed out? No, because I live in the real world. (laughs) Uh, I mean, in the real world, economists know that this is not a Canadian inflation crisis. It's a global inflation crisis. Energy prices are up. 60% 60% around the world, not just in Canada. The ability of the government to reduce gas taxes is zero. They will be going up to fight climate change. Um, the debt loads that right-wing economists and lobby groups um, have argued for years uh, are, are too heavy and are much too heavy now um, is simply a revelation of the paradox they find themselves trapped in. They can either argue for lowering debt or lowering taxes. You can't do both. Mm-hmm. And they don't, like, they don't want to choose between the two because they're separate audiences they're appealing to. I think the main reaction I have to the, to the throne speech is simply it was uh, vacuous even by throne speech standards. The, the dilemma for this government, I think, is that they can't say what they know they will have to do on climate change next. And they can't come up with new ideas to distract people's attention. So they simply repeat the campaign slogans over and over again. But if you look at the situation in British Columbia, for example, that will add $50 billion of public expenditures recovering from what's happened up to now. Um, That money is going to come from the public purse and therefore from taxpayers. These are realities. They're not, uh, you know, they're not this fantasy that you can maintain services, reduce inflation, reduce taxes, and reduce the debt all at the same time. 
That's just magic economics. So help us understand, help the average person understand when they hear, and we didn't hear it yesterday in the throne speech, but they hear about a trillion dollar debt uh, and, and deficits and into the double digit billions. How do, how do you, how do you put that into context? Like, how is that a concern? People always say, oh, I don't want my children to have to shoulder the burden of that debt. But is that the reality? I'm afraid it is going to be the reality for quite a while. I mean, the the thing which the government, and no government, I suppose, has yet dared to say is just how much fighting, fighting climate change is going to cost all of us in the next decade. It will be in the trillions of dollars globally and in the hundreds of billions of dollars in Canada. Some of that will come from private sector investment. Most of it will come from taxpayers and government. So, yes, it's a concern, but it's a problem we created for ourselves by denying and avoiding and delaying the reality that we knew was going to hit us a decade ago or more. So, yes, it is a concern, but I'm afraid it's an unavoidable one now. Uh, Kevin, back to you. Um, you know, just today alone, we have a massive storm happening in eastern Canada. 300 millimeters of rain, parts of the Trans-Canada Highway washed out in Newfoundland. Uh, on the west coast, we have more storms coming, more rain on the way to an already battered province. You know, Robin makes an excellent point about how much money that is going to cost. Climate change, this is just the, the beginnings of uh, the results of climate change. Uh, you didn't mention that with concern about, because that is going to be coming from the taxpayers. No, I think that is a fair concern. I, I think, though, one of the things that's missing in the throne speech, and I think on the discussion on climate change generally, is what is an effective way to reduce climate change and what can we do to actually have an impact. And that, I think, is, uh, you know, right now we're just talking about throwing more money. Robin keeps talking about, oh, it's going to cost, you know, billions of dollars, but we put money into things like tax credits for energy or for electric cars. Well, that's a direct subsidy to those who are the richest uh, in Canada. Is that really an effective way of reducing climate change? The answer is no. On the other side, I think we have done very little to address mitigation. I mean, one of the reasons why we have the issues that we have in BC this week is that, uh, to Robin's point even, that there hasn't been a plan to put forward to deal with some of the mitigating circumstances. Instead, we're fixated on these flashy ideas. Um, and I would also disagree that there's not a lot the government can do to help alleviate the cost of average, uh, of average Canadians, which is when you look at something like the carbon tax um, and the price of gas, I mean, the price of the carbon tax is going to increase over 30 cents a litre by 2030. Uh, and that is going to go to a lot of these subsidies that have no bearing or impact on the uh, environment at all. So there's a lot government can do yet. Um, to address, uh, I think, climate change, but also to address um, the uh, the issues that they're facing with their pocketbook. Robin, a rebuttal to what Kevin was saying? Hey, Kevin, the reality is this, sir. The tax on gasoline will hit 50 cents a litre, probably by 2035. And that is the only effective way ever found in the world, you're a believer in markets, to have the emission levels actually be reduced. There is no other magic solution than taxation. And so it's a bit strange for you to claim that on the one hand you're in favor of climate change, but on the other hand you're in favor of getting rid of the one tool with views that demonstrates it works. I'm really quite at a loss. Kevin? challenge on that is that the stats don't back up what you're saying. So in British Columbia, for example, when they raised the carbon tax, um, the consumption of gasoline actually went up, not down. Um, as, uh, as we've seen with changes in the economy, that's also true. Um, so, like, I'm a parent uh, of two kids. One of them plays hockey. Like, we need to get the kids to the rink one way or the other. We're not going to be able to get them there. We're not going to bike them there through minus 30-degree weather here in Edmonton. Uh, I suspect a lot of people in Mississauga aren't going to be able to do that either. Um, so it doesn't change the very fact of what people have to do and how what is more effective is rather than trying to solve this problem through taxation is to try to deal with the mitigating circumstances. 
uh, and the government really has uh, no no plan for that. Well, let me ask you both this, and I'm speaking with Kevin Lacey of the Canadian Taxpayers Association and Robin Sears, crisis communications consultant, former NDP strategist. How do we motivate, how do the, the Trudeau Liberals motivate the private sector to get involved in paying to mitigate climate change? Robin. Well, I think you put your finger on the core question uh, at the front end, at least, of what we've got to go through. We need to massively ramp up private investment in alternative technologies uh, that will reduce carbon emissions. We need to encourage the private sector to retrofit their own facilities, manage their own supply chains and transportation systems in a more sustainable way. And that all costs money. Some of that money will come in the form of grants from government, yes, and some of it will have to come from private investors. But you're absolutely right. Without the support of the private sector soon to make these kind of changes, um, we're going to be even more troublesome. Kevin, your thoughts on that? I I would just add to in this discussion about the private sector that um, we need an international um, discussion about this that goes beyond um, flying 200 bureaucrats to Glasgow and pretending like we're doing something. Fair. Uh, The problem is, is that we could shut down the entire Canadian economy, and given everything else going on in the world, we won't have a single. It won't have a single dent of an impact on climate change. And so, I think until we have an international discussion, and countries such as China and India are willing to do some serious heavy lifting on climate change, um, we're just putting ourselves at a competitive disadvantage, and we're hurting our own economy and our own ability to create the wealth that's needed to make the investments that Robin and other advocates are looking for. Um, so that's, that's a, I know, a big challenge. Uh, and I'm not saying the government hasn't tried uh, and, you know, isn't working towards that. But to, to say, let's put, you know, kind of put the handcuffs on our own private sector at a time when other countries are just going to take advantage of it, I think is, is a little backward. I've enjoyed your contrasting opinions. I just want to ask you both. Uh, both of you were critical of yesterday's throne speech. What did you hear, Robin, that was good, that is promising, that could be built on by part, all party communi- um, cooperation? Well, I, I think I'd have to come back to climate. If the government is serious about doing some of the necessary tough changes, it's going to need cross-partisan support. The Tories are inching towards that, I think. Uh, the Bloc and the NDP are already there. I think this is the time for the government to be ambitious about delivering on climate, not simply blowing hot air on it, as it were. Kevin? I like the foreign affairs uh, angle they're taking. The government uh, was far more aggressive in this uh, throne speech about putting Canada's place in the world, raising Canada's profile in the world. And we're talking about issues like climate. I think that is you know, exactly what we need the government to do is to raise Canada's profile and get out there in the world and spread a little bit more Canada around uh, around the globe. We will leave it there. Thank you both for your opinions. Thank you. Thanks very much. Kevin Lacey is with the Canadian Taxpayers Association. Robin Sears is a crisis communications consultant and former NDP strategist. Jane for Libby, who is back tomorrow. You're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. And still to come... And I want to hear from you on this. Are you planning to spend more or less on loved ones this holiday season? Phone lines are open. 416-360-0740. Toll free 1-866-740-4740. Let me give them to you again. Are you spending more or less on your loved ones this holiday season? 416-360-0740. Or 1-866-744-740. We're being encouraged to shop local, and we'll tell you why next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.